Good evening, everyone. <laughs> From outer space here, I'm tuning in to all the seems all these wires and whatnot. Of course, with the in the spirit of Aldaria, which Asha uh, Monastery is named, it means really it means going inward in order to reach out. So in the spirit of reaching out, it's well, the technical uh, equipment is about it might be shared with others who have interest but have not the uh, facility to come the distance and spend time with us. And we've come from near and uh, and far, some of you. This evening, this is kind of a precursor to our, our weekend. Many more devotees and visitors' guests will arrive tomorrow and Saturday. That said, this is the official day, according to the lunar calendar of the appearance of Sri Chaitanya. So, that's auspicious. We've kind of moved the festival this weekend for the convenience of everyone in the working world that they might uh, have a better chance to participate. But still, on this uh, Thursday evening, we have, let's say, persons from next door, from down in Boonville, from, from Costa Rica, from up north, Oregon, from North Carolina, from Sweden, from so from all over the UK. It's not fair because we're here all the time. Okay. I'm from Poland. Is that you, Greg Sindri? <laughs> Sounds like her. So I want to speak in, in, in as general and broad a terms as I can about a very deep uh, subject, especially heartfelt subject for us in our tradition, uh, founded, if you will, more or less as it is, out of the ecstasy of Sri Chaitanya, who uh, appeared in this world on this day uh, from the secular calendar. It would be... February 18th, 1486, um, maybe even Thursday, at about 6.15 in the evening. And of course, we follow the lunar calendar, so every year the date moves and so forth. And the secular calendar we're more acquainted with and we use regularly every day and so forth. Um, that's the date, so that's the time. Mm-hmm. And the time, uh, basically, of his appearance uh, corresponds with the setting of the sun and the rising of the moon. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was a full moon, also a full moon. Mm-hmm. That said, the axis of the sun and the moon, astrologically speaking, the axis of the sun and the moon aligning 
as they did with the lunar nodes as they're thought of in Vedic and Indian astrology, Ketu and Mahu. Um, the, uh, the sun and the moon axis aligned with Ketu and Ratu, Rahu, and that calls for an eclipse. Mm-hmm. So, um, eclipse, of course, as we know it in our modern times, is the, the Earth's shadow getting in the way of the sun, if you will, or the, or the moon, depends, I guess, on whose perspective, the sun's perspective, or our perspective getting in the way. Um, this was a lunar eclipse, and the eclipse is thought in ancient Hindu uh, culture to be an auspicious event. The Rahu planet, uh, which is really the, the shadow, as we know it today, of the Earth. Of course, in Indian uh, uh, Hindu culture and so forth, all the different uh, features of nature, of the natural world, are um, are personified and spoken about in very poetic terms. And deities, goddesses and goddesses are posited and so forth. I don't think this is a lesser way of talking about the world. Indeed, I think it's a way of speaking about the world that enables us to participate in a more meaningful way. Modern society modern humans are somewhat um, distanced from the natural world uh, compared to times gone by. And I think that's, that's a great uh, shame. Of course, some people in our modern times, like us, gather here and have a different idea and would like to be in uh, closer touch with, with the natural world and, and how it works and approach it in a more loving way that it might reveal its secrets rather than in a controlling, almost menacing way to exploit it for our human ideas of what life should be or what we think it, it should be. It's said, uh, there was a famous quote actually from Grover Cleveland, that if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. So this is kind of the spirit behind the Indian... Hindu approach, and um, all Eastern uh, traditions, spiritual traditions, and many Western spiritual traditions uh, prior in, in this country, for example, Native Americans and so forth. Uh, uh, Christians are, of course, uh, different in a way that Christianity uh, had a bit of a... Um, well, it's, it can be argued, and it has been, that the, that the environmental crisis is are thought to be experiencing has its birth in a particular Christian outlook about nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's really what Jesus was talking about, but I don't think it was, but um, to get rid of the pagan gods and goddesses and superstition and so forth, Europe was urged by the one true religion and nature was subordinate to to man, really, so were women, and uh, <laughs> and uh, thought to be uh, at the disposal of, of man for his his pleasure, as the son of God, or the sons, the children of God, would be pleased if, if they were pleased. Um, 
So anyway, then just to some extent where we are today in the environment. Christ is in an alienation, really, between the human species and and the rest of the natural world. So, uh, in the in the Hindu times, in the Hindu perspective, as I say, all of the prominent features of nature were personified, deified, um, and the world was spoken about poetically. Now, the tendency is to speak about it mathematically. Um, which is a descriptive language, but it's a descriptive language math that lends to the idea of controlling something. Hmm? Poetry is more of a participatory language where, um, where, for example, in relation to describing the natural world poetically, it invites us, that language, to participate in it and find more in it, the more in it, if you will, than what meets the eye, and the mind alone in poetry, the moon can have wings that fly across the sky, and the sun can ride on a chariot, and, 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 and so forth. So it kind of expands the, uh, the experience of the senses only of the world in a way that, it, that the world is described such that it corresponds more with what we feel intuitively life should be about. It should be, and in this we're feeling ourself, the Atma consciousness. It should be a, an existence, an experience in which there nothing is, is, is impossible. Hmm? We kind of feel like that as humans, and we kind of pursue that also. I said before that the birds fly high in the sky and the fish dive at the bottom of the ocean, but fish don't try to fly in the sky and birds don't try to fathom the depths of the ocean of humans. We try to go to the bottom of the ocean, we try to fly in the sky, we try to do everything hmm, that all the different species of life do and are limited to doing by their particular bodies at the time. Birds have those kind of winged bodies, it's really limited in that respect. It's thought in Hinduism that when we arrive at the human life, hmm, the Atma, the self, the consciousness that is Really what life is, it's not biological, it's not psychological. There is a psychological and a biological reality, but life is consciousness, not matter. So it's not born when the body is born, biological body. It doesn't die when the biological organism comes full circle and comes to an end. So that consciousness that we are, that's animating the physical and even the psychic dimensions of ourself. When it comes to human life, it it starts to feel itself. You know, there's a kind of a freedom in human life um, that to think, for example, and think I am. We kind of don't think that the ants think that I am, and they have philosophical meetings and so forth. It doesn't make them any less than us. It just means. From our perspective, they have a particular body that doesn't, according to karma, that doesn't afford them that, and they'll evolve in a way, they'll arrive at a human body, and they'll think, I am. And that sounds great, but it's also a huge problem. <laughs> what am I? Why am I? Hmm? What is the meaning, value, and so forth? Suddenly, value and meaning become an issue in human life to an extent that they don't 
they aren't an issue in less complex forms of life. Meaning, value, purpose, and so forth are not so much the concern well, our, for our cows it is, but for most cows or most birds and bees, they're concerned about how, how to eat, how to sleep, how to protect myself, how to, how to mate, and so forth. So the how questions, nature can answer the why questions. That's another thing. Meaning, purpose, value. This is a consciousness issue. And in our perspective, consciousness is different from matter. It's what really gives meaning to matter. It makes matter matter, if you will. And so, in human life, the self begins to ask about itself. What am I? Why am I? I feel like I could that I shouldn't die, for example, that I could do anything, that I should, it, such is the nature of the Atma. It doesn't die. It may pass to different species, change dresses, so to speak, but it's, according to the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, it, is, it can't be burned. Nainam chinnati dainam, nainam chinnati dhati, what is it? Nainam dhati pabaka. It can't be burned, it can't be withered by the wind. It can't be uh, dissolved by the water. It cannot be destroyed by any weapon. It means it's indestructible in the self, the Atman. And we are feeling that I'm indestructible. But it doesn't appear as such in relation to our, psych- our psychic and physical dimensions, but we try to go beyond that. And we invent methods, telescopes to go farther out, see farther, and uh, microscopes to see more, uh, the smaller things, and so on and so forth, and we try to fly, try to cross the ocean, as Columbus did, and he was successful, and we went, we went to the moon, we went to other places, and so on and so forth. Um, but all of this type of movement, by it, I should say, we are not going to arrive at the, at the sense of being that we are feeling that's causing us to move in those directions. That I'm a unit of eternity, and by nature I'm, I'm, I'm blissful and perfect in of myself, and there's nothing... I belong to a world where there's... Uh, where impossible is not found in the dictionary. We can go all the way to Pluto, or wherever, the next galaxy, or enter a wormhole and come into another universe and so forth. But we won't find a full experience hmm, by such outward going hmm, that we sense our life is about. That requires inward going. Hmm. That requires meditation, satsanga, kirtan, these type of uh, traditional methods for going within and experiencing the more, if you will, that we are. Hmm? And, as I say, that the Hindus describe nature in a very poetic way that kind of corresponds with that uh, self that we are that doesn't have limitations, because it speaks about the world as if it ha- everything's alive, everything's animate, everything's a person. Hmm? Trees can talk and, 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 and move, you know, they they, 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 they eat with their feet and uh, all kinds of beautiful uh, descriptions that, that kind of animates the world. The problem, as I see it, 
um, with a lot of the modern thinking, secular thinking, if you will, uh, non-spiritual thinking, is that we inadvertently and without thinking about it, we look at the world as if it is ours to take and enjoy and for our mentally conceived purposes and sense of self and so on. So we kind of take the life out of it, so to speak. We don't see it in relation to its source. We're not the source. We're not the center. But we tend to see things as if I'm the center and it's revolving around me and for my purposes. And so forth. therefore it doesn't cooperate entirely. And we're upset why it doesn't cooperate. But we have to move in a different direction and see the environment is not the problem. It's me. I'm looking at it from the wrong angle of vision. Humility has been described in our tradition as absence of the spirit to exploit a thing for my mentally conceived purposes. Hmm? That arguably allows us to see the world in a more animate, living and expanded um, uh, sense that corresponds more with, again, what we are as an optimal. So, the Hindus, along aside there, they, uh, they personified, if you will, the shadow of the earth. They called it Rahu. Hmm? And interestingly, in the Hindu uh, iconography and art and so forth, Rahu is depicted as, as bodiless. So you get from that that they understood it's only the shadow. If you want to talk about it like that, we can also talk about it like that. Hmm? He's headless, actually, or not headless, bodiless. He's just a floating head, this Rahu. Hmm? Uh, so he's not a, <laughs> and he's thought to be a, 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 a malefic influence, in as much as the sun gives us vitality. Uh, it uh, from the sun we get vegetation, food. It makes the mind, you know, the sunny day you feel good. Uh, it enlivens the mind and so forth. And the moon also, its brightness on the full moon tonight, as we'll see. It's very warm, comforting, soothing, and so forth. So that influence would cover it. Hmm? If, for example, there was a more enduring influence than an eclipse that eclipsed the sun hmm? or eclipsed the moon, this would be a big problem for us. If, it didn't, if they didn't rise one day, hmm? what would happen to the tides? What would happen to our lives? How could we even read about it? Hmm? Um, without sufficient light and so forth, what to do. These are things that happen, you know, the sun rises every single day. Hmm? And we probably very seldom think about it. Hmm? It's a huge event. If we could be a little more closely tied with nature, and obviously we have an animal side to us, hmm? we're part of nature too, physically speaking, psychically a little bit different than less complex species, but but this is just an example of how distant we are from the natural world. I mean, in, 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 in ancient times, of course, it was, uh, these things were noticed, hmm? and they're important, the rising of the sun. So if it was covered for a short period, it was thought to be somewhat inauspicious, projecting, if you will, that if the sun would be covered, what would happen to her? Our lives, so forth. The sun is kind of sometimes used as an example of the God, also because 
it rises and it, and it, it brings the day, it brings the vegetation, as I say, it makes the mind. If we were so dependent upon it, if it didn't rise one day, well, we'd probably be finished. If, you know, so, if it's decided to, to stop rising or something like that, obviously I'm talking about it in poetic ways as well, but we're speaking about the idea that there's consciousness behind matter. Hmm? And that's a, a very big idea, that really that the natural world, in order to be what it is, depends upon observation. Hmm? It depends upon observation. It's a, it's a, to speak about it more scientifically, it's, it's, it's just a potentiality. And this is how the ancient Hindu texts talked about the natural world, the pradam. It's a potentiality. And when it's observed, when it's witnessed, when it's glanced upon by Vishnu, it's activated, it takes on meaning. Meaning is then embedded in matter, and it evolves in a particular way and so forth. And now in modern science, there's some sense as classical physics is, is, just doesn't measure up with the quantum reality that, that, that applying ourselves technologically to the quantum reality, um, two-thirds of our economy is based on those equations. Hmm? Equations based on a quantum perspective, hmm? quantum physics perspective, quantum mechanics, the mechanics of, of whatever, quantum. <laughs> uh, so but based on that kind of math, if you will, then we this is basically what we do with science. We draw out with the help of technology. We, we, we use those figures and, and then we create something to make our life more comfortable and, of course, lose sight of what we're really all about to a large extent. So, <laughs> so anyway, the, the, the quantum reality, I want to say, is, is something you just can't get away from and it doesn't really like fit between the ears too well. It doesn't fit with the classical physical perspective in which the world was thought to be a machine hmm? and um, it was all very predictable and so forth. Everything was determined. You could do equations and determine everything that would happen at all times and so forth. There's some, there's some unpredictability hmm? in the quantum perspective. People want to want to stay away from that. It's, an, it's like disconcerting. They want to play it down. And so forth. But then there are some more, I would say, honest um, and courageous people in the scientific community that say, well, actually, things are different than we thought, quite a bit different. And if it involves the fact that we have to deal with consciousness now, then we better do that and so forth. So, things are changing. Hmm? That's good. Hmm? Hmm. But again, um, the, the idea in Hinduism is that consciousness is behind the matter, and they looked at matter in the natural world and talked about it in such a way that it would promote pursuing the self, the inner self, and all the possibilities that lie there. Hmm? So with regard to the eclipse, again, it was thought to be an inauspicious event. And, and interestingly, in our tradition, the Gaudiya Vedanta tradition, this particular eclipse was thought to be auspicious. It was thought, or it was spoken about in this way, that Rahu, the malefic planet, hmm, who is 
at odds with Chandra, the moon. Hmm? Although the moon is soothing and bright and and uh, 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 does something, it's romantic uh, and so on. The uh, uh, Rahu found reason to find faults in the moon that, well, you have spots on you, you're not perfect. Hmm? And at this time, what's happening is Gaur Chandra. This is another name for Sri Chaitanya. Gaur means golden, and Chandra means moon. So there's a golden moon that's rising hmm? at this time, astrologically speaking, the birth of Sri Chaitanya. And he brings an auspiciousness that outshines any auspiciousness that the full moon unto itself could bring to the world. So let me cover the full moon, what I always said, that the golden moon of Sri Chaitanya may rule the night, if you will. The the philosophy behind this kind of poetic explanation of planets talking with one another and, and so forth and, uh, and thinking about their configurations with regard to their influence on births, on earth, and so on. The philosophy behind this is the, the appearance of Sri Chaitanya and the method to his madness, his ecstasy, hmm, was, is such that it has the power to turn malefic influences into positive influences. Hmm? Some spiritual positions are based on the idea of overcoming or doing away with malefic influences. I mean, in one sense, the world of birth and death is a malefic influence. <laughs> you have to de- be born, you have to die again, born again, die again, and the whole idea is to get out of that, so to get away from that, to get free from the cycle of birth and death, birth and death, and so on. So this getting free, this salvation, it has a kind of a, kind of a, a, a passive or static kind of uh, positiveness to it. In other words, I want to get free from a problem hmm? is one thing. Let's, let's give an example. It's raining out. It's, there's a storm and I want to get shelter from the storm. Material existence is like a storm. Hmm? And it's powerful. It's like a tidal wave. Like a, it, and You can't go up against it. Hmm? so to speak. We're very tiny and small. And death is there for everyone. It comes. At what time? At his own, his own time. So there's not much we can do about that. So we want to get, maybe we want to avoid the storm. So the pursuit of mukti, salvation, emancipation from birth and death, is like, I want to get out of the storm. And Sri Chaitanya's approach is, Why? Let's dance in the rain. Something like that. Hmm? It's a very, it's a positive approach. Hmm? It turns the malefic influence, the storm, into something positive. We can dance in the rain. Hmm? Turn it into something different, something, an inauspicious thing, into something auspicious that has a very positive connotation to it. And, and again, philosophically speaking, this is the difference between a doctrine of knowledge and the doctrine of love. What I mean by that is the doctrine of knowledge is one that comes to the, the conclusion that if I'm in pursuit of enduring life and enduring happiness, 
I cannot get it in relation to things that don't endure. It's pretty hard to refute that idea. And what does not endure? All things. Everything is here today and gone by, by nightfall. Hmm? If not tomorrow or the next day. So the comings and goings, the appearances, the appearances of things, hmm? they're, they're just like, like, like dreams. They're just extended. That's what they come, they go, they come, they go. And pursuing those things and acquisition in the name of pursuing enduring life and enduring happiness. That's a folly. Hmm? So knowledge, in this perspective, is, is, to, is to stop to know this and to act accordingly. Now, if you know this, that the pursuit of temporary, temporal, the temporal is not in the interest of being eternal, <laughs> if you know this, what do you do? Hmm? See, if you know it, well, you don't do anything. You don't move in relation. We're all moving in relation to things. Hmm? So if you know that you don't move. So this is a doctrine of, of knowledge where the method, if you will, to apply oneself in relation to the knowledge is really to sit still. There's a saying when we were kids, don't just sit there, do something. And now, of course, there's the idea, don't just do something, sit there. That's not so easy. In a meditative sense, in a contemplative sense, in a deeper sense. Hmm? And we can't just sit there as much as we're attached to things and they're drawing on us and we have desires and so it gets in the way of our being able to sit and apply this knowledge. But this, as I'm speaking about it, spiritual pursuit is a doctrine of knowledge because it is about the idea that enduring life does not, will not come from the pursuit of things that don't endure. That's knowledge. And what do you do? You, 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 in a sense, you do nothing. You sit and you stop from acquiring and you stop from thinking also. Things and thought. So stop the mind from thought and stop the pursuit of things. This is a kind of a suspended animation in terms of our present life, which is so animated in pursuit of things and, and chasing after the thoughts that come in our minds and so forth. Hmm? So to stop that, this is knowledge, but this knowledge causes us to sit still. It has a positive connotation in relation to moving, kind of trying to go up the down escalator. Well or to, from negative numbers, as I often say, to come to zero, that zero has a positive connotation in relation to negative numbers. So there's a positiveness in being still. But the question is, are there any positive numbers? There we come. We must come to a doctrine of love because love involves some movement. And love also involves knowledge in the full sense of the term. Knowledge, love is a kind of knowing where you know what to do in an essential sense. Hmm? Love is pregnant with knowledge. So what we're talking about here is a doctrine that includes the knowing that the pursuit of temporary things and the temporal is not going to bring me in the direction of the eternal, which is my nature. Hmm? 
in pursuit of things which can't reciprocate, really, I'm not going to find love. Hmm? So, this Shaitanya Mahaprabhu's doctrine, this is where I say, it's one thing to try to get out of the storm. Hmm? Okay, let me get out of the cycle of birth and death. It's a problem. I'm fostering it by desire and attachments. So let me stop desiring and give up my attachments. And that's easier said than done. How do I do that? And just sit. Hmm? So you have yogis who just sit. Hmm? And they undergo great austerities in order to pursue this theoretical truth that I'm eternal and the temporal and its pursuit will not afford me that experience. And so you have your Himalayan sadhus and so forth and dressed only in ashes and, and so on and so forth. The Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's tradition is a little different, thank God. Uh, that's a, a very difficult path hmm? in practice and the result of it is, from our perspective, kind of half of all that you could attain. Freedom from birth and death hmm, in a kind of eternal stillness. Hmm? No taking, no exploiting, but not taking, not exploiting is not the same thing as loving. It's included in it. Hmm? If you love, then you give, you don't take. Hmm? But love has a more full and positive connotation that includes not taking within it. So a doctrine of love, hmm? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's form of Vedanta, is therefore a devotional form of Vedanta. And for there to be love, there has to be an object of love. So his object of love is Krishna. Hmm? And this is a way of speaking about the source of consciousness that we are like, the fire of consciousness that we are like a spark of. Hmm? Krishna. You may have, we are all familiar with Krishna to some extent. He's depicted in art uh, in, to, to be, uh, his color is called sham in Sanskrit. It's the color, all of the colors in, uh, all of the emotions have a color in Indian aesthetics. We have the same thing. We have warm colors, we have cold colors, we have party colors, we have funeral colors, <laughs> and so on and so forth. So, the color of romantic love, that is called sham. It's kind of a, like the dark rain cloud. It's kind of blackish, bluish. This is the complexion of Krishna. Hmm? If you study Krishna, as is depicted in art and spoken about in poetry, he's eternally youthful. He's an eternal adolescent. So adolescence is like you've arrived, everybody wants you. Everybody wants the adolescent. They want him in college. They want him in the military. Hmm? They want him in the monastery, <laughs> for better reasons. They want him. It's, it's youth is desirable, and and the youth is very attractive. Hmm? You know, all of us, if we saw pictures of ourselves in our teens, we think oh, it was pretty good looking. It <laughs> in those days, things change. Uh, uh, so, so youth is very is is, is attractive. Hmm? See, these are ways in which the Hindus have experienced, I should say, and then depicted, hmm, as much as you can, the ineffable in words and uh, in, in art, in music, in poetry, in literature, and so forth, that fire that is uh, that, that we are the spark of, hmm, that is depicted as being all attractive. Not only all attractive, uh, but 
all, all, all attractive in all ways. All attractive, we could be attracted to glamour and glitz and so on and so forth, hmm? but we're attracted more to kind of a down-to-earthness that we can get close to, if you will. Hmm? Intimacy. Hmm? So he's the deity amongst all the Hindu deities that 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 that, um, that, um, that uh, speaks of possibility of love and intimacy. And there's Krishna's not sitting on a big throne and uh, he, he's he's herding cows and walking barefoot. And his crown is a feather of a peacock, like our peacock here. You know, his feathers. This is the season now. I know he's loud, <laughs> but he's got beautiful feathers this time of the year. He's mating, but he's a he's celibate here, like the rest of us. <laughs> he doesn't have a mate here, so. Uh, <laughs> but Krishna would pick up the peacock feather, and that would be his crown. So it, it means he's he's the the center, if you will, the heartbeat of the Hindu idea of the Godhead. Krishna is is a loving heartbeat, and love, in its fullest sense, it speaks of intimacy and getting close to a person, rather than loving in reverence and awe and so forth, which creates some distance. I've said before that if 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 someone is sitting on a seat like this and says, "I'm God," and you believed the person, you might say, "Oh my God," and move back a little bit and and so forth. So Krishna doesn't doesn't foster that type of moving back, but moving in, close. Hmm? He speaks of the possibility of love in intimacy, and love ultimately on a scale, if you will. The more intimacy it affords, the more there is the exchange between the you and the me, and, we be, and you and I become we, we become one unit. Hmm? Radha, Krishna's consort, said, those who say, I love you, know nothing about love. Hmm? What? Hmm? Because when you say I love you, there's you and there's me. Hmm? But in love, we are both one. Hmm? Hmm? We can't tell the difference between one another. We are we're confused. Hmm? Who is Krishna? Who is Radha? There. This is, hmm? and this Radha and Krishna. This combined. We're going to this in days ahead as we go more from exoteric to an esoteric explanation of Sri Chaitanya. He is the com- thought to be the combined form of Radha and Krishna. So he has great capacity, his, his teaching, as I say, to, to turn the malefic into the auspicious, to, to, learn, to teach us how to dance in the, in, in, in the rain. Hmm? And uh, so a philosophical doctrine of love that takes us not from the negative numbers of karma where we've taken and now we owe we're at negative one negative two negative three to zero where there's no karma I'm no longer bound I'm just peaceful from there that's kind of a Buddhist idea if you will uh, to positive numbers and then there's movement movement and transcendence in the meditative world the subjective world the real world if you will that's what's called lila Hmm? in Sanskrit means the play of the absolute to this movement this movement is not like our movement which is a taking to provide for something that we've identified with that if we don't take for it won't be here tomorrow the body and mental sense of self hmm? that karmic movement is a movement out of obligation the leela movement is a movement out of karmic is I should say a movement out of emptiness I feel empty I need to get so I move to take and acquire and I think by acquiring, I'll be more. 
So we stop taking, we find we are more, hmm? but we're peaceful. Now there's movement too. Hmm? This is a complicated idea. But this movement is different. The lila is the movement of fullness. I, there's a movement out of emptiness, and there's a movement out of fullness. I feel so full that I need to move and celebrate that and say, I'm full. Hare Krishna. <laughs> so this is the, the, the kind of um, prospect, if you will, in transcendence that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu speaks about, and he's maddened by it. He's a very personification of ecstasy. Historically speaking, from a religious and spiritual point of view, there's no one figure in the world who exhibited a greater spiritual ecstasy than Sri Chaitanya. This is a documented uh, fact, if you will. It's a very extraordinary uh, character. And this by uttering the name of Krishna. Hmm? This was the method to his madness. So, when he appeared in the world, hmm, the moon was, ecl- it was a full moon, but the moon was eclipsed. Hmm? And so the people in general in Nadia, in that vicinity, they thought this is inauspicious, so they went to bathe in the Ganges. This is right in the Bay of Bengal, where the Ganges, up from up on high in the Himalayas, reaches its source, or reaches its destination, I should say, into the Bay of Bengal. The river enters into the oceans. Very, very beautiful place. Flat land there. Hmm? And rice paddy fields. Hmm? I was speaking this morning poetically about that. How you go there. Now, when we first went in the early 70s, Brahma, uh, there weren't very many buildings there at all. You could see for just miles and miles of just flat rice land. And in the early morning, at the end of the rice, it would appear, there was a huge red globe called the sun. It looked like the sun had just landed. And you could just walk out and, and touch it. That big body that's, that you know we're so dependent upon in so respect, so many respects, as I was saying earlier, it just came very close, and it, it was red, and you can look right at it at that point. You know, in the noon you can't look at the sun; it's too, it's too bright. Hmm? But at this time it's very friendly, and the reddish color called Arun, in Sanskrit, in the, in the aesthetics of India, it's the color of friendship. Hmm? <laughs> so. I was speaking about Krishnadas Kaviraj, his poetry. He was describing the appearance of Chaitanya like the rising of the sun in the morning. We could just feel him in Bengal and thinking, the sun, such a big and powerful thing, but it's come so close. And I can look at it. Hmm? Not only is it not uh, uh, too bright for my eyes, but I can't stop looking at it. Hmm? It's very soothing. Hmm? And I feel like I could reach out. It's come and made it. Made it God has made himself approachable to me. Hmm? It's very, a very powerful uh, metaphor. Hmm? So the people at the time, this was night, of course, now the moon is rising full and covered by Rahu, the eclipse. And they're all thinking it's inauspicious. So they all went to the, to the Ganges, hmm? the sacred river there. And they're all bathing because the Ganges is supposed to have a purifying effect and, and, and so forth. One of the main veins of the world, of the earth, if you will, and um, said to fall on Shiva's head in the Himalayas and then from there descend down the mountain and into the Bay of Bengal. And so they were bathing in the Ganges and they were chanting the names of Krishna to counteract the inauspicious effect of the eclipse. So... The idea is that Rahu covered the moon 
that the people would bathe in the Ganges, which is auspicious, and chant the name Krishna. This would herald the appearance of Sri Chaitanya, who taught a doctrine, as I'm saying, and 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 uh, personified a practice that has the power to turn the make inauspicious things auspicious, make the world an auspicious place, uh, and and how to be in it and not of it, so to speak. Hmm? So, uh, this is the, uh, you know, the, the, the little bit about the time and the uh, little bit about the philosophy of Sri Chaitanya. I said his method, the method to his madness, to his ecstasy, which was extraordinary. Again, he would chant the syllables Krishna, and he would fall in a swoon, and at, his hairs would stand on end. He would pour tears like a syringe and bathe the people around him. And uh, and uh, many other, uh, we have a, a doctrine a, or a text of Dirasamrita Sindhu that talks about the nature of ecstasy and all types of detail and so forth, drawing from all the sacred texts of the, of the Hindus. And we, they, they, in, in writing that book, Chaitanya was located on the map, if you will, of the scriptural map, and um, his ecstasy was was explained. Hmm? But it's uh, it sounds disconcerting to be crying all the time, hair standing on end. But it said in Bengali, there's a nice poem. It says, The nature of prem, which means love for Krishna, is such that on the outside. It looks a little disconcerting, but inside it's full of ananda. Hmm? So even in the practice for the monks, it looks a little disconcerting. They shave their heads. I don't know if I want to do that. Um, but inside, if they practice, it's blissful. And this was taken to the extreme in the person of Sri Chaitanya. Inside, it looked like he's wailing and falling. And uh, some people, the original Orientalists, the European scholars who went to check out the Hindus, what they're about, when they studied Sri Chaitanya, they said, Seems like he was an epileptic or something, falling. Of course, I replied when I heard that the first time. The only problem is epilepsy is not contagious, and his ecstasy was contagious. And many, many poets and literate literate persons of the time wrote biographies of him, narratives of him, interspersed with with philosophy and so forth. Many, 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 many thousands and thousands of songs about him. Many witnesses to his ecstasy and so forth and they sought again to locate him on their map of the time the map of the time and the standard of knowledge of the time was the sacred texts hmm? so they saw this phenomenon and they looked in the text and they could this is Krishna wait it's not just Krishna Radha is there also and this way they made sense out of it from their uh, world view and, and they became intoxicated by his influence and also began taking to the name this was his of chanting this was his method. This, in one sense, in a broad sense, this method of chanting, the idea behind it, hmm, in terms of Sri Chaitanya, was, Sri Chaitanya was that here is, in a basic sense, a method that, that, that is, uh, is not foreign to any spiritual tradition. All the spiritual traditions have some idea that there's sacred the name of God is sacred. They may have different names for God, hmm? but they all hold it sacred. The Jewish people have an idea that the name of God is sacred, so sacred you can't say it. Don't say it. Hmm? And 
and the, 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 the Islamic people, they have, I think, some beads they chant on, 99 names, something, Allah and others and so forth. Of course, your Hindus have many gods, many names for God and so forth. Um, the Bible, was the Catholic, uh, the, the Christian, one ahead. in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was one with God. So you find this idea that the, the divine logos, the sound, hmm, there's, a, there's something of sacred sound. And of all the sacred sounds, the, 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 the epithet that describes God, which might be many because he's a many-faceted reality that, 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 that uh, God had. Of course, I keep saying he, but it's, we have to look at it as Radha and Krishna. It's a combined both sides there. Um, many names, many facets. It's like a valuable jewel. You can look at it from so many different sides and, and it shows so many different faces. And then we will describe the face and so on. But the name of God and the sacredness of it is held throughout the religious, the spiritual world. So here is a principle that has arguably some capacity to unite different traditions, which are often at odds with one another, unfortunately. That uh, we all accept the name of God as sacred, so let's sit together and sing the name of God and retire all the philosophy <laughs> and see what happens. It's sacred. Let's, let's evoke its sacred power, its magical power. And let's chant and drown out all the thoughts. It's It's hard to sit and just stop thinking, but if you could sing the name of God, arguably it's easier to concentrate on the loud sound hmm, and stop the mind from its madness and uh, and, and arrest the, the thought mechanism there and know. In other words, it's not we, we, that we know because we think. Thinking gets in the way of knowing. Hmm? We are a unit of knowing. Hmm? Mind is a very limited instrument for knowing and by it and by intelligence alone we can arrive at conclusive truth for every logic there's a counter logic hmm? so the name the invoking of this it meant to take us you know, it's a transrational methodology it's not unreasonable but it picks up where reason leaves off we can reason and think about should I do it should I not do it why should it what does it mean uh, just sit do chant and go hmm? and that's the experience so he thought in one sense, this has the capacity to unify traditions, let them all come together. Hmm? From, a, from a, a kind of a religious perspective, from a secular perspective also, we find today that the efficacy of, of sound is coming to be um, thought to be considerable. Let's take, for example, string theory. You know, you've heard of string theory. I'm not an expert on it, but I know a little bit about it. Basically, the idea is that if we look at matter and you keep making small you take a tree and you make it into a branch make a branch into a into a twig and a twig and you keep getting smaller and smaller you get atoms and you get quarks and then the idea of string theory is that beyond the quark beyond the quark there's something and it's it's a vibration hmm? and poetically speaking they say that the world is a concert in the mind of God something like that hmm? You know that in physics, there's a there's a mathematical equation for all the vibrations. You can take a string on a violin. You play the violin, viola, right? Similar, and they can make they have an equation that they can predict what it will sound like. From you know, if you if you if you can translate math, <laughs> you know, 
This is what it will sound like, really? <laughs> okay. Uh, so, and the, the, the equations, the mathematical equations that govern um, acoustics, uh, harmonics, hmm? these are the, the bread and butter of physics. These are the most ubiquitous of all. Uh, these uh, harmonic uh, are used in anything from everyday life to cosmology to astrophysics and so forth. So, in a way, hmm, um, what's being thought of in those circles is that, that, similar to what the Vedas say, the world comes from sound. Hmm, and there are sounds by which the world of comings and goings, of birth and death, can end for you. Hmm? And to invoke that sound is in your interest. And the sound, these two syllables, Krishna, is one of those sounds, if you will. Hmm? So this was the method to, again, his madness. And again, it's something in a broad sense that, well, the sound has efficacy, that he also advocated the singing of the name in congregation, in mass, rather than sitting alone and meditating, which is, we also do that, but we get together and we sing, and our neighbors know that. Um, <laughs> and you're always invited to come, any morning or evening, any time. That just goes without saying. So, uh, the this is another aspect of his method, if you will, in his madness, that the chanting, but also in mass and congregation. And so we see today, even in the secular world, that when people get together in mass and make protest and they shout and make noises and have signs, so, well, you can take down the Berlin Wall or whatever. You can change governments and so on and so forth. So it's the same, same principle, only kind of honed, if you will, in a way with certain sounds and kind of coming together for a certain purpose. Not to solve this problem or that problem or that problem, but to end the world of problems. Hmm? Press down here, we'll come up there. And vote this side and that guy will do that. And, you know, it's pretty hard <laughs> to work it all out. Right? It's, it's very... Uh, so we kind of give up on that. We, we think that let's make a comprehensive solution of the whole problem hmm? and transcend birth and death. Let our focus be on that. Hmm? Uh, let's make a vote for that, something like that. So enter the stream of the kirtan and uh, help yourself and, and, and by it become a better person. Others in the world can benefit from your good company and so forth. So, this was something about his idea and his appearance. What is the time? And that's the time. <laughs> and the time is up. So, I wanted to give a short uh, uh, explanation. In days to come, tomorrow we have no particular events, but on Mondays, so Saturday we have. Well, it's uh, it's my birthday, so they tend to celebrate that, and we, and, uh, we do it in an Indian way, which is not much different. Just different rituals, different customs, and uh, I'll speak a little bit about that and what the, uh, some ideas about the principle of guru. And in the evening we get together again. I'll. Some of you have written some homages. Maybe we read from them and think about how that uh, spiritual influence has uh, affected your lives. And so we'll celebrate that. And, of course, there'll be feasting. Tomorrow the feast is at midday, right? 12.30. And then Sunday we have 
is uh, morning. We have our morning program. I'll speak in the morning at, I think, 10, and then again in the evening at about 4.35, something like that. So more guests will be coming in, so move over, make room for them, you know. We have zoning problems here, and we couldn't build a hotel. And, and, uh, and we probably wouldn't anyway if we could. So um, keep one another warm. It's nice in the day, a little cool in the, in the nights and in the, in the morning. And again, I, I thank you all for your time and your participation and your inspiration being a good listening audience. Hare Krishna. Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu ki jai. Gorpuni Mahamotsubhu ki jai. Shri Gorarti ki jai. Gorpremanandi. 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 Gorpremanandi.